Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Those out there who say, like, we should not work on finding the cure for cancer until we find the cure for all the other diseases and illnesses out there. Competitive cities have to do both. They have to grow economically, and they have to continue to invest in public education and all the other priorities as well. This week, LeVar Stoney, mayor of Richmond, Virginia, on his full plate from Monument Avenue to Navy Hill, housing, schools, and naturally, Pat Benatar. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. You could catch it also on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Joining me in studio in downtown RVA is none other than Mayor LeVar Stoney of Richmond, Virginia. He is the 80th mayor of Richmond, Virginia. He was elected in 2016 at the young age of 35. He was previously the Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, Robin? Mr. Mayor, uh, I'm elated to have you in studio as our first New episode of the year 2020, and uh, so many headlines to start with, with the Senate in Virginia changing hands. We're going to talk about this New York Times headline, uh, really putting Richmond on the list of, of one of the 52 places you must visit in 2020. But before I even go there, look, elected officials are not loath to take credit for things, but I go around town telling people that the Stony Point Fashion Park was actually named <laughs> for you in 2003, uh, 13 years before you were elected. You must have been five years old. <laughs> no, no, five get that? years old. Yeah, I do get get that sometimes. It's all about how people spell my name, right? You know, my name is spelled S-T-O-N-E-Y. Stony Point Fashion Park is S-T-O-N-Y. So I cannot take I've, the credit. Cannot take the credit. I've gone out to dinner several times on that story. And thanks for, <laughs> thanks for ruining it for me. But here's some interesting things. So the New York Times lists Richmond, Virginia as one of its 52 places to visit in 2020. When did you learn of that? I learned of that this morning, actually. I received a text message from my good friend, the superintendent of Richmond Public Schools, uh, Jason Cameras, who just texted me the link from the New York Times with the number, number 32. I went and read the piece myself, and you know what? It mirrored pretty much what I usually say. What I said, actually, when I started running for mayor in 2016 is that I want Richmond to be known not for its Confederate past, but what, what we're trying to do now, what we're, we're writing a new chapter now. I want to be known for that. And so the fact they have uh, mentioned that Richmond is now the, the, the cultural center for all things arts, history, and culture in the Commonwealth of Virginia, that's what we've been working towards. And we are more competitive, more attractive of a city because we are more inclusive of a city. This is not your grandfather's or your great-grandfather's Richmond. Uh, this is not Richmond of 1970. It's not the Richmond of actually 2000. This is 2020. I think we are we get an opportunity to actually write a new chapter in Richmond's history. And guess what? Uh, that New York Times piece is just the start. So this is interesting in that this headline and these honors come literally hours after Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, is in town to meet with you. I mean, he's obviously a, nominally he's a presidential candidate with the Democratic Party. What did that feel like, like a double dose of, of New York and Richmond? Hey, I love the fact that presidential candidates from uh, from both parties uh, will likely be stopping through here uh, in 2020. Uh, my assumption is that uh, the candidate on the Republican side, uh, Donald Trump, will be stopping through here as well. I still believe Richmond's a very con competitive state, uh, although we will lean uh, towards the Democratic Party. You know, Mayor Bloomberg's team reached out to me uh, a couple of weeks, uh, maybe a week ago, and said that, hey, you know, the mayor's coming through town and wants to get coffee with, well, your mayor. And so that being me, uh, we went to Ironclad Coffee 
uh, and I had, uh, you know, they said I had a decaf, Robin. I don't drink decaf. I drink, you know, caffeinated real coffee. Now, I got to say, Mayor Bloomberg requested uh, decaf with a little water in it. Uh, it had been, I guess he had already had a lot of caffeine already flying in from Los yeah, Angeles. Did you know, night. did you know, LeVar, that caffeine can give you heart palpitations? I could see him giving you that speech. <laughs> Have you done anything about cholesterol? Rob, guess what? I, I didn't start drinking coffee until I became mayor. We have really good coffee in this town. Yes, we do. Apparently, Steven Spielberg was wowed by Lamplighter. Some people are Black Hand aficionados, Blanchards, Ironclad. We've had him on the show previously. And we got great spots, you know, uh, Brewer's Cafe, Urban yeah, Hangsuite, yeah, yeah. you know, all the, you know, But Sefton. people don't believe me. So I moved from New York, and when I came here, they were like, oh, you know what? You had a good run. Good for you. It was like down <laughs> They thought I was moving to Talladega or Tulsa or something. But then How I come dare here. they? Well, I didn't, you know, I moved here. I married a Richmonder and fell in love with the city. And as you know, circa 2012, 2013, things really started to pick up. I mean, you said you were just in Oregon. We've been called the poor right. man's Portland, the poor man's Austin. I think that that poor man thing is increasingly being... Portland has Jettison. nothing on Richmond. I tell you that. I, I was there for uh, eight days, seeing my 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 young brother. Uh, I could call my little brother, even though he's thirty six years old. Uh, he's you know working in in Oregon right now with the United States Air Force. Bought a home in Beaverton, and we spent some a lot of time in Portland. But I have a hard time waking up in the morning uh, to gray skies and, and and rainy days. You don't you you get a little bit more than that here in Richmond. You yeah, know, you get you get some sunny days. You get all four seasons, and uh, it's just uh, you know this is a beautiful. You place also to live. you don't boast to people that we have the biggest Arby's in the world in Colonial Heights. That's not in your jurisdiction. No, I can't say I boast about. But it's the metropolitan. Biggest How do you not tell people that we have the biggest? I'm Arby's? sorry. I, I mean, You're in a green room in Rockefeller Center. Rob, I'm not a fast food guy. You heard about this, You're right? You're a pescatarian, and they I'm serve a. <laughs> sandwich during Lent. <laughs> I have a pescatarian in 2020. I saw him, what, seven, eight days in. You know, by the time folks hear this, you know, I'll be maybe a week, you know, two weeks in and whatnot, nice and healthy. Very good. <laughs> well, by way of transition, this year started uh, just hours. I'm, I'm reading from a WTVR headline. In the hours after Richmond City Council voted to ask the Virginia General Assembly, newly Democratic, for authority over the Confederate monuments in Richmond, somebody spray painted concise messages on the monuments. This is racist on Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy, and the phrase God is gay was spray painted on the monument to Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, which is now on the intersection of Monument and Arthur Ashe Boulevard. How often, I mean, when you're on the road, do you get asked about the monuments? This is in such sharp relief now with the Kahinda Wiley mm -hmm. statue and Monument Avenue being our prominent thoroughfare. When I travel, I don't hear a lot about the Confederate monuments, let's say, uh, west of the Mississippi River. But east of the Mississippi, uh, in the Northeast, or in other parts of the South, in the Mid-Atlantic, I, I, we are known for uh, our Confederate iconography. And uh, we've, we've got to change that because you know, after moving here since, what, 2012, 2013, yeah. you know that Richmond's a whole lot more than uh, a bunch of monuments on Monument Avenue. And so... Uh, you know, the last time I got really asked about this was I was uh, speaking to a course at Harvard, and I think that's pretty funny nowadays, that me, the JMU grad, you know, first in my family to graduate from high school, now going to Harvard to, to speak to kids about, you know, what, I've, what, what we were doing here in Richmond, I think this is pretty funny. Um, I got asked about Monument, Monument Avenue, and Monuments here in Richmond, and what we were going to do. And this happened actually after the city council rejected the resolution that recently uh, was approved the third time or the second time. 
I have a question every time I go up and down Monument Avenue, specifically looking at Jeff Davis. What happens if somebody under cover of night were to winch down the Jeff Davis statue? What does that kick into effect, the daisy chain of reactions? There was, you know, the state has jurisdiction over it now, but Richmond City Council is looking to wrest that jurisdiction. Does that land on your plate? Does it become a Richmond police or a state oh, trooper yeah. event thing? It's a, it's, a, it's a Richmond problem. Here's the thing. I always want to know what Robert happens. Robert E. I mean, Lee, is uh, that, that monument is owned by the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mm. We are responsible for the other monuments, okay? So let's say there was an act of vandalism like the one that, that occurred the other night. Uh, that is a Richmond problem. You and have so to clean off the, the spray The Department paint? of Public Works would, will clean, uh, will, will clean the, the monument. Uh, and if there was any any vandalism, we we the the Richmond Police Department are the ones who will be investigating who actually did the crime. If somebody were to winch it down, though, I do wonder about that. I know um, it's a loaded. It's a. It's, I I think about it. He's 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 low hanging. He is low hanging. The heavens. Um, it's been defaced several times. It's been defaced graffiti. many times. And here's the thing: we are not. We will never promote uh, vandalism. We want. We don't want acts of crime to occur. Uh, on 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 any of the city's properties as well. Do I believe that the monuments send the wrong message? Yes. However, that doesn't mean that you know city property. That means you should be should go out committing crimes and vandalizing properties. I'm totally against that. However, I, because I believe there is a uh, legal and government way to find the removal of. Uh, a solution to the removal of Jefferson Davis. And I think uh, with the work of the General Assembly and the work of the city council moving forward, that we can get there. How much is kind of uh, what happened in Charlottesville on that terrible day in your mind? Like you talk about Monument Avenue, which has the the monuments in stereo, and Mm -hmm. you're talking about one or two monuments in Charlottesville and the people who showed up out of state. Suppose you go through all the statutory things to get permission to either contextualize or move down these monuments. I, I worry about this sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the people who would descend on the avenue on Grace Street, yeah. um, is that instructive? And yet you could study New Orleans or Chapel Hill and other places where the reaction was more muted. Uh, for any municipal leader, it should be instructive, right? Because it's uh, it's not a far-off idea. Um, we saw that sort of reality occur just you know a little bit over 60 miles away uh, in, in Charlottesville. And I remember where I was. And I was watching the whole thing via Twitter and, 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 and streaming services uh, of, of what was going on in Charlottesville. And then just thinking there are obviously uh, there, there are uh, there's some ramifications, some impacts of what happens in Charlottesville here. That's why I kept an eye on Charlottesville. So uh, such an eagle eye on Charlottesville. And when it comes to uh, those sort of demonstrations, you know, Richmond, we experience more demonstrations and protests than any other locality in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So I'm very, very proud of my police department because we know how to handle these sort of uh, events. However, no one wishes those sort of events on uh, uh, on their localities. And so uh, moving forward with the potential of potentially of removal of a monument like Jefferson Davis, you know, we will go through a uh, a full checklist of public safety um, per- public safety measures. Uh, we want to obviously protect one's First Amendment rights, right? The right to assembly and the right uh, to speech. However, property and and lives are our number one priority. And and unlike uh, Charlottesville, these monuments are uh, are on they're right in front of people's homes. I mean, this is a corridor down a neighborhood. Uh, so they're my first priority, the people who 
currently live in the neighborhoods uh, along Monument Avenue. That's my number one priority uh, over any sort of steel uh, inanimate object. What I can't get my head around when I go back and look at the footage of what happened in Charlottesville, this is an open carry state. And you're not talking about just small handguns. People can carry in, I'm not sure if, you know, AR-15s or semi-automatic things. And how is that reconciled between the, the National Guard, you know, state troopers, uh, in, in the event, you know, Charlottesville police, God forbid one errant bullet or one misunderstanding yeah. happens. How, who is in control of a situation like that? Well, you know, Rob, earlier, uh, I think right after the Charlottesville uh, incident, um, we actually had uh, some demonstrations here. We had some folks coming out of Tennessee and other parts of the country uh, who wanted to protest uh, our work with the Monument Avenue Commission uh, and just our some of the th- uh, just their disagreement with some of our beliefs that those monuments should be re- that removal of those monuments should be on the table. And we had the help of not just the the city of Richmond's police department, but police departments in the region as well, who were uh, on call to ensure that we can keep the peace. And the the statement that I continually repeat to those who choose to come to Richmond and uh, rally around um, these monuments uh, and show their bigotry is that if you break the law, right, if you break the law uh, or anything that's currently in the code of Virginia, we will lock you up. We will lock you up. And I'm not playing around when it comes to that because my number one priority uh, is to protect the lives of those who live in the city of Richmond and the property uh, of those residents as well. And so we will lock you up. But we're grateful for the help of those in uh, in central Virginia, you know, Henrico, Chesterfield, uh, the state police as well, who all came together to ensure that we um, didn't have any issues on those days. One final corollary on this is what does – the Kahinda Wiley statue, rumors of war, mean wow. in the context of this. I mean, that really got national press. It did. Uh, it was posted up, this statue that began its march in Times Square and came to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And That's it's right. perpendicular to Monument Avenue. It's it's on Arthur Ashe Boulevard facing, I guess, Stonewall Jackson on Monument Avenue, mm-hmm. just north of it. What does it mean? Well, you know, uh, first, 2019 was such a great year because we took the steps to rename the boulevard for Arthur Ashe Boulevard. Uh, that's That was major. That was also put us on the map with national news that we're taking steps to be more inclusive, more welcoming. Uh, and also we're, uh, we're uh, applying an equitable lens to the work that we're doing here in the city. And some thought that uh, it was a waste of time or a waste of money on renaming uh, Arthur Ashe Boulevard, but I think it was the right step for the city of Richmond. That's number one. Number two, uh, the Kennedy Wiley statue, Rumors of War, man, being there uh, in Times Square with Kennedy Wiley and the amazement uh, of all the the on, uh, the onlookers in, in New York that this monument showing an, uh, an African-American uh, on top of a horse, which, you know, in the city of Richmond, there are no African-Americans on top of any horses in this city. It just is, I, I think, an excellent twist on something that is, to me, so meant to be so sinister and so uh, intimidating and it now being a, a welcome guide. A, uh, that, that, that statue, to me, is our guidepost for what Richmond can be in the future. And it, it's all due to Kendi Wiley. But it was inspired by, you know, uh, Jeb Stewart not too far away. On a visit here for by Kendi Wiley, he's walking down Monument Avenue. He stays an extra day and starts to walk down the 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 the, the avenue uh, and sees Jeb Stewart, and it, it sparks this like, you know, something's not right. 
But what Kende said that actually threw me off a little, I was taken aback just a little bit because, you know, uh, we all should never assume that uh, we have, uh, we're homogeneous in thought. He said that, you know, without the Jeb Stewart's or the Stonewall Jackson's uh, monuments, there is no rumor of, rumors of war. And I thought that was very, that, that was, that intrigued me because he's correct. Uh, you, there would be no context for rumors of war if there wasn't uh, uh, a, 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 a Jeb Stewart or a, uh, uh, of you know a Stonewall Jackson. So I believe in removal, right? I, I think that removal has to be on the table when we have these discussions about this sort of icono- iconography. Uh, however, um, I, I think that if removal isn't on the table, we have to discuss how we go about interpreting some of these monuments and put them in the proper context on how did they get there, why they were put there, and who these individuals were. And I think, you know what? Kennedy Wiley's monument, uh, Rumors of War, gives us the room to do that. We don't, it doesn't have to be a, um, a one-sided approach. It doesn't have to be a, a one-size-fits-all either. Uh, it can be a mix of removal uh, and uh, reinterpretation, and that's exactly what the Monument Avenue Commission proposed. Mm. Mayor Stoney, uh, talk to me about the state of the party, the Democratic Party. We mm. just you know, reflect at Michael Bloomberg visiting you here. This is clearly a swing state. A lot of people talk about Virginia, Northern Virginia, which you have a lot of experience with being a whole different state. And you go to a place that's uh, very much up for grabs like Chesterfield. And then you go to Southern Virginia or Southwestern Virginia. And it's a whole different state. Uh, what is the state of the Democratic Party here? You have uh, the, the, you know, the state assembly, which just shifted hands. But you know, dare I say that the governor is an active lame duck. He started last year with the blackface scandal. The lieutenant governor is is uh, credibly accused of rape. He has not stepped down. I don't know who the locus of control of the Democratic Party in the state of Virginia is. Yeah. Uh, I well, know that's and, a lot to unpack. Well, you know, here's the thing. Mike Bloomberg came here and I, visited yeah, with you. I, I, uh, I've seen this party when this was a red state, Right. When this state was the majority of the of uh, the congressional delegation was Republican, the House and the Senate uh, and the le- the legislature was Republican. The governors, the the statewide candidate uh, offices were Republican. And how far we've come since the time I graduated from college in two thousand four to be now here in 2020, and we have full control of the General Assembly, full control of all statewide offices in this state. And also um, a majority of the delegation uh, to Congress as well. We have done a total you know, 180 when it comes to demographic changes, uh, despite the gerrymandering uh, of lines by the Republican Party. And you saw Ralph Northam running a victory lap about that when the state went blue. That's right. I mean, Ralph Northam helped fund campaigns. There was money left in his coffers and everything. But I still wonder, was this more of kind of a an ongoing 28, 2019 blue wave thing? Or is he truly, has he re-rested control of, of the party in the state? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I do credit Governor Northam for his work in 2019. He did what was necessary when he could for candidates around the state. However, there was a host of other individuals involved in in winning back this majority in the House and the Senate. Well, one that comes to mind for me is Terry McAuliffe, the former governor Your of Virginia. My mentor uh, uh, and my former boss as well, who, uh, you know what, after saying he did not want to be 
Uh, he, he did not want to run for president of the United States. He actually got into the mix and said, you know what, I'm going to make sure we win back this majority because we were, you know, the three statewide uh, leaders for the Democratic Party were sidelined. and Including Attorney General Mark Herring. Exactly right. right. And so this is the guy who went out there and, you know, traveled the country alongside our, our new speaker, uh, Eileen Fillercorn, and uh, our, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, Dick Sassall, to bring these dollars back, these resources back to invest in races throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. And that's how we won the majority. And so it's a collection of individuals who actually help us win the majority, whether it's Mike Bloomberg and his outfit that that, that focused on uh, common sense gun measures. Sure. Uh, Tom Steyer's outfit was here as well. So all across this country, there are a number of Democrats, progressives who came together and said, let's get it done. And we would be, I would be remiss if I did not recognize uh, the number of grassroots leaders out there who made this whole thing happen. So, uh, as a party, um, we're lucky enough to have many leaders, right? Uh, and what, what I think what last February showed the Democratic Party of Virginia was that this party is bigger than one person. Well, two this people, party, three people. Three people, I right? I mean, this is at the very top. That's You're talking right. about the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general. I think what 2019 showed that this party is not in the past— let me just give you some history. In the past, this party, our state party, was always dependent upon one individual— Right. Uh, we went up and down. We ebbed and flowed with the election of a governor. When Mark Warner was elected after us being in a drought for so many years, uh, the party was big and bold again. And then when we lost the governorship to Bob McDonald, we had some dark, dark days. Were you on the brink of calling for the, the triple resignations when the, when the blackface scandal and the, the sexual assault scandal broke a year ago? The party does a tremendous amount of introspection, like with what happened with Al Franklin. And Kristen yeah. Gilrand said, we need to cleanse ourselves before we start taking on President Trump and his record and whatnot. And you saw that kind of stop at the Virginia level. They're like, well, if you're not going to have an you know, asymmetric warfare, if that's not being asked of the commander in chief— why should we sacrifice party leaders? Yeah, well, I was uh, one of the first to call for the resignation of uh, Governor Northam, and uh, I did call for the resignation of the lieutenant governor as well. Uh, th- we, those were all value-based decisions by me. Uh, and I did talk to the attorney general when uh, his scandal broke as well. Uh, they, I asked all of them to do the right thing by uh, the state party, the Democratic Party, but also most of, uh, 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 most of all, they should do the right thing by uh, the residents and the citizens of the Commonwealth of Virginia. They chose to stay in office, and as a party, uh, as a state, we dealt with that, right? I mean, we had, uh, you know, it was some tough months there uh, before finally, you know, I think we kind of got to a place where it's obvious that these individuals aren't leaving office, and... Uh, you know, the, the show must go on. Right? So to pivot to the national election, when the likes of Biden or Sanders or Warren comes to town, they put their arms on whose shoulders? Is it kind of a you and Abby Spanberger type thing, Tim Kaine, Warner? I think it's the stink that's still left in the room is that if you can't meet with the governor or the lieutenant governor, that they're kind of, you know, either shadow figures or invisible hand figures in the background. That's really problematic for a swing state of this caliber. Well, I think it still goes back to what I said, though, Robin, earlier, is that this party is bigger than than three people, though, right? And luckily, we're in a position now as as a, as a state part, as, as a Democratic Party in this state that, you know, when we only had one or two people who actually could, could lead the way, uh, lead us out of the wilderness, now we're fully out we're fully out of the wilderness with a number of leaders at both the local level, the state level. And I think that um, 
if a candidate running for uh, for president of the United States, he or she has a number of choices of people that they can lock arms with to ensure that the Democratic Party uh, and their candidacy and their campaigns will win the presidency here in Virginia again in 2020. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Mayor LeVar Stoney of Richmond, Virginia. He was previously the Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, I believe at James Madison University, you were the first African-American male elected president of the student government? I was. I'm a student government nerd. And you haven't cracked 40 yet? No, I haven't. I, <laughs> I'm 38 uh, I'm a student government nerd. When I was in elementary school, I was student body vice president. When I was in middle school, I was student body president. High school, I was student body president. College, I was student body president as well. You know, leadership and um, and, and civics and government have always kind of been in my blood. Uh, I'm an older brother too. Uh, I just always thought that the the best vehicle to make a positive difference in people's lives was was government. Now, you can do that in many, many ways. You can be a doctor. You can be a uh, firefighter. You could be a police officer. You could be a business person. But I've always thought that the best way to do that was through through, through government. Well, Mr. Mayor, what about the, the state of the party nationally right now? You know, we did an event um, back in 18 at the Museum of History and Culture here called Ace the Midterms. And we asked the congressional correspondent on that night, um, a month before the midterm elections, Aren't you amazed that there is still no clear leader torchbearer for the Democratic Party? And now we are on the brink of, of the 2020 primaries, and you still can't point to one national leader of the Democratic Party. This is years after Donald Trump was elected in the most contested election. You know, things can congeal pretty quickly, as you know, and everybody's going to come to town. But I still can't tell you who leads the Democratic Party. Well, I still— Nationally. Well, I would say, Robin, we would, we would all be remiss if we did not recognize— uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, though, uh, I see her as really the the leader of this party at the moment, as, as the you know the third in line or second in line to the president presidency of the United States, uh, and as uh, you know the first woman to ever hold this role. I think she is a a true power player uh, for the party. Uh, now, here's the thing: I understand uh, that the speaker's. Uh, is polarizing in parts of uh, not just this state, but also parts of this country as well. Uh, but also President Obama was a polarizing figure for some as well. Uh, I, I think that she is the leader of our party at Nobody the moment. Nobody is going to take Nancy Pelosi on a campaign swing through you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida. I mean, yes, that, that will secure New York and San Francisco and whatnot for you. But again, it's not instructive to, if this goes back to the Electoral College and that, that arbitrage, you know, Hillary Clinton took how many more million votes fundamentally in California, but this is still going to boil down to about 100,000 votes across three or four states. Yeah, yeah. And is is there a figure right now that's stepping forward that you believe can wrest back those Electoral College votes from the Republican Party? Well, it sounds like you're asking me whether or not I'm willing to make an endorsement yet in the presidential Feel free. <laughs> I mean, this is full disclosure. You can make all sorts of— you know. Well, you know what? As I stated earlier with Mike Bloomberg visiting Richmond you know, just earlier this week, um, I'm still courting, uh, uh, or I'm still—I guess I'm being courted— by the presidential campaigns. I've heard from Deval Patrick. I've sat down with Elizabeth Warren's team. I've, uh, I'm talking to Vice President Biden this week. Um, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure out uh, who is the, the best to actually, for me, it's about electability, right? Uh, as a Democrat, it's someone who's worked not only as a public servant and an elected official, but also as someone who's worked in in the machinery. You know, I've helped get elect, uh, 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 people elected. But hasn't it become so reductionist that we're not talking about national electability? It's it's talking about three or four states at this point. Yeah, and I, I, 
I, I think you're right. Uh, and, and to me, it's, it's not just about like who can appeal to uh, a white female or white male Midwesterners. It's about who's going to get people excited to come out to vote and beat Donald Trump. Now, here's the thing. We all have benefited. This state, uh, uh, some of my friends who got elected to Congress in 2018 have benefited from the gift that keeps on giving, and that is the mouth of Donald Trump. We've benefited from that. And that may still, in 2020, be uh, the motivator for, for a number of people to come out to vote. At the end of the day, Robert, we can't excuse the fact that this is the most unpopular president in the history of the United States of America. But he also has and he's been impeached. Enormous popularity in the Republican Party. He has a huge fundraising lead. Uh, he has a stock market on his side. He has record low unemployment. The things that that nominally worked for him to kind of make the leveraged case for the Electoral College, you can argue that that he can even deliver more into 2020. But and also, so the onus is on the Democrats to make a case. The onus is definitely on the Democrats. As a, you know, I, I don't come to here with any bias in terms of calling calling like it is, and that is this: the onus is on us. You know, anytime the incumbent is up for re-election, uh, it is the the opposing party, the opposing candidate that has to make the case that this individual should be fired. And I think the Democrats, uh, whoever it may be, can make that case. Uh, if it's just simply behavior, obstruction, uh, the way he has used the federal government uh, that is uh, that I think puts a number of American citizens at risk, uh, the case can be made. It, there's enough um, There's enough of a record out there for any Democrat to make that case. But who is the best messenger for that? And for me, I want someone who is pragmatic, someone who is going to be practical about what we can actually do. I, I love, as mayor, my job is to be not only aspirational about where the Richmond should go, but also to be the pragmatic voice in the room to say like, okay, we may want to go there, but today this is what we can do, hmm. you know? And so when it comes to a number of policies, positions that I'm hearing on the debate stage, what can we get done for the most amount of people today? According to 538.com, uh, Donald Trump starts 2020 as the most unpopular president since Gerald Ford to run for re-election. My son asks me about the Electoral College all the time. Yep. This is not about the national vote. This That's is about right. uh, a handful of swing districts across three or four this states. This is about Wisconsin. This is about Michigan. It's about Pennsylvania. Um, these are the sort of states, you know, precinct by precinct that we cannot ignore. Now, if I'm a presidential candidate, uh, let's just say this. I think that uh, Vice President Biden has the best shot at winning Virginia just outright, okay? If it's Elizabeth Warren or if it's, uh, uh, if it's uh, Bernie Sanders, you're going to have to actually set up a campaign uh, here in Virginia, I think, uh, and, and compete with Donald Trump. Now, if Biden were to win the nomination, he doesn't have to necessarily show up in Virginia all the time. He can spend that time that— uh, past candidates on the Democratic side were doing spending time in Virginia, and he can spend that time in Michigan, in uh, Pennsylvania, where I think he has a, a good foothold as his birthplace in Scranton, uh, and um, uh, in um, in Wisconsin. Might as well ask you: Are you open to to a vice presidential nod? <laughs> 
I've never cart, ever cart before horse. No, I mean, you're no, in studio. no, 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 no. I'm focused on the nice thing is nobody listens to Rob, my I show. My told, mother, my mother listens to my show. I thought I told you that I was uh, running for re-election as mayor of the great city of Richmond. Uh, that's what I'm focused on. Um, I don't think a vice presidential nod is coming my way, but you got a number of mayors running. Pete Buttigieg is running. He's he's a mayor. Uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg, a former mayor as well, and so. There's some opportunities for a mayor to get on the uh, national scene. It doesn't have to be the, the, the little guy here in Richmond. Well, then let me make a sharp turn into Navy Hill, <clears throat> the swath of land uh, in downtown Richmond. I was married in downtown Richmond at that Marriott uh, back, back in, you know, you were a very, very young person back in 2008. It was love in the time of financial crisis. And I remember I had no restaurants in that vicinity to recommend for my guests and everything. It was mostly pawn shops. And I said, you could go to Maymont, you could visit the Jefferson Hotel and whatnot. But now it is... Uh, unbelievably gentrified. If you go through Jackson Ward and Carver and the stuff that's happened downtown and Restaurant Row on Grace Street, why, pray tell, do we need this ambitious public-private partnership, $1.5 billion Navy Hill proposal, all sorts of breaks for wealthy developers to expedite a gentrification that's bound to go to the Navy Hill neighborhood anyway? Hmm. I would disagree with the premise of bound to go to the Navy Hill uh, area anyway because you know, the city's been growing at a pretty good clip, uh, you know, over the last three years. You know, we've seen about 8% growth over the last three years uh, in terms of our tax valuation, right? However, so basically, you know, neighborhoods like Scott's Edition, Manchester, neighbors you mentioned, they've been helping with that growth. However, this area of downtown, Navy Hill, 2%, a measly 2%. Why? Because you have broken infrastructure, you know, you got roads that go underneath ground or just simply stop because they run into a building. And that's why you're not really getting the sort of growth out of this area. And guess what? The city owns a lot of these parcels as well. And so for me, Navy Hill presents a excellent opportunity for us to actually go boldly into the next decade uh, rather than being the keepers of the status quo. Uh, we can't expect this to grow organically because if it were to grow, if it was if it was going to grow organically, it would have already done so, just like Scott's Edition, just like Manchester, but hasn't been the case. So what you need is an economic stimulus for this part of downtown, and that's what we get with Navy Hill with a 1.2 billion dollar investment uh, stimulus from uh, the private sector, and then uh, that will allow for us to actually tackle some of the challenges I think we have in the city, and that is number one. You know, we have the lowest unemployment rate in a generation uh, at roughly 2.9 percent, but we still have 4,000 people who are looking for a job today who are just underemployed. And what Navy Hill presents us with the creation of thousands of jobs, uh, 20,000 jobs that have been projected. Uh, and, the, and the ability to bring back $1 billion to the city in, in surplus revenues over the course of 30 years to tackle some of those wicked challenges. Well, like let's step back for, our, for our, our listeners outside of Richmond. Is The, the, the linchpin here, the, the, the centerpiece is the Richmond Coliseum. Yes. It's had its heyday, but I'm thinking Harlem Globetrotters. Harlem Globetrotters v. Yeah. Washington Generals. Yeah. I mean, it's a rusted tin can. My daughter went to the final. Rusted tin can, huh? I think you could get a lot in terms of scrap metal if you yes, just you take could. it down. And yes, maybe that, that alone could redevelop the entire neighborhood. Um, there's a medical examiner's office back there. It, it, is, it, is, it is dated. It is abortive. It did not work. Um, 
But this idea is that the, the, the CEO and chairman of Dominion is leading a developer group to effectively Northern Virginia-ize that, that area, right? Northern Virginia. Yeah, you would have a, 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 a March Madness caliber yes. uh, arena for concert venues to not overlook Richmond. You would have a great hotel space, restaurants and everything. And um, uh, the idea is that uh, city administrators said that they expect the project to generate an estimated $500 million in additional funding for schools over the next three decades. Gotcha. Um, Davenport, which is the city's financial advisor, projects that the Navy Hill project will generate a total of more than a billion in net general fund revenue over 30 years after the area bond debt is paid. So having said that, why didn't it excite the animal spirits of more private investors? Why was there just one investor that stepped up and said, I'll do it? And with financial aid, there's multiple investors involved in this. You know, this is not just uh, private, you know, just not just private cash. It's also financing involved, and it's, it involves a number of different investors. Now, there's one development group involved in this, and this was a uh, we had an RFP, a competitive bid process as well. And the reason I think that we only had one one development team actually step up because. I'm not going to lie. I drove a hard bargain with the request for proposals. In that RFP, I said, you know what? If you want to do this, you're going to have to do it without the help of the city's general and moral obligation. And in projects past, projects out that were named, renamed, <laughs> remain nameless, well, like, you know, the Redskins Training Center, you know, we used uh, the city's general moral obligation. Now, those are the dollars I need to use to build new schools and build new roads. And I will not sacrifice those dollars to build uh, uh, arenas. And so with this project, they brought this sort of investment and uh, equity to the table to do it. I don't know if too many outfits can actually make something like that happen. For what it's worth, I mean, commission members found that, and I'm reading from Richmond Magazine, that the project, quote, poses a risk to the city's general fund and future dollars for Richmond public schools and that the cost of the Navy Hill redevelopment, development parcels and the impact of the project on school funding and the city's general fund were not reasonably estimated, close quote. As you know, we had your school's chief, Jason Cameras, on right now. And this is desperate, desperate situations. You bring in a world-class school's chief and it's it's a it's a it's a matter of you know, have nothings versus the haves. Mm -hmm. And how do you, from a kind of a Maslow's hierarchy level, how do you even begin to mull something like this when you have not taken care of the schools? Well, I see that's, you know... Is that uh, a fallacy? I think that's a, well, that's, we have begun where we fully funded Rich and Public Schools in uh, the 2020 budget, right? Uh, $37 million in new money, $19 million for maintenance and capital repairs, $18 million invested in our teachers, and then also in closing the academic uh, the achievement gap. That's the most money ever invested in Rich and Public or uh, most money invested in, in Rich and Public Schools in a generation, in a generation. For those out there who believe that, you know what, we can't do anything out of, uh, uh, as a city until we fix the schools. It's like those out there who say, like, we should not work on finding the cure for cancer until we find the cure for all the other diseases and illnesses out there. Competitive cities have to do both. They have to grow economically and they have to continue to invest in public education and all the other priorities as well. But there is a chicken and egg. You know why? Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the headquarters for all things state government, we are, number one, landlocked. Unlike cities across the Northeast and in the Midwest, we can't annex counties and create more and more tax base. We're landlocked. So all you can do is really is grow up. And also, second to that, is that as a home of state government, 
many of our parcels in Richmond are tax exempt. Why thirty percent of our land is tax exempt? Really, sixty percent of the land downtown tax exempt. We lose out on fifty-five million dollars in tax revenue each and every year. So we have to grow. It's it's really in in, in city uh, city affairs. It's either you grow or you die. And I choose to be ambitious and say, you know what, this is a plan for growth. But beyond just the buildings and an arena and a new 500-room hotel, this has to be about people as well. This is not just the largest economic development project. This is the largest economic empowerment project. So to what end, why haven't we hit up Henrico and other you know, uh, regional beneficiaries of this project more? I mean, that's a, a valid criticism. A valid, this is not just a Richmond project. That's a benefit. valid question. Uh, I would say, though, that we, the Richmond taxpayers, own these properties, not Henrico, not Chesterfield. So every dollar we get from a hotel guest in the new hotel or uh, a visitor to uh, the new arena, we would have to split that dollar with, with, with Henrico and with Chesterfield, even though we own the land currently. So I am very... Uh, I, they don't come to Richmond and, and ask us uh, if we want to be a part of any new development in Short Pump. They don't ask us that. They don't ask us what, or any new development in, in Chesterfield. That doesn't happen. We own these properties, and it, it should be a return to the residents of the city of Richmond, a full 100% return, not splitting it with any other counties. And here's the thing. When people say, well, why shouldn't this be uh, a regional project? I just personally believe that Richmond should and can do this by itself. I really do. And so for me, of that billion dollars that could be returned over the course of 30 years, I want 100% of it to be returned to Richmond taxpayers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Mayor LeVar Stoney of Richmond, Virginia. He was the youngest uh, elected mayor of Richmond in 2016 at age 35. He's the 80th mayor of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I am, uh, you know, fascinated to kind of open it up in the, the you know, the final third of this show. Uh, you're a young person, but back in my day, we would go roller skating and the DJ would come on and say, uh, this is the point where you got free skate. We're going to play some air supply right now. And I would like to open it up to free skate to things where you could kind of turn it around and tell us what we should be talking about. The important topics of state. Clearly, housing is a is a is a constant lament. Affordability, the eviction rate in this town. Um, you could talk about tobacco taxation, which used to be very taboo, but you finally <laughs> kind of moved on that. Uh, it, it used to be a third rail that you didn't touch. Uh, there are issues of uh, the bus system in the state and mass transit. Suddenly there's uh, development going on with high-speed rail. Richmond may or may not be the terminus of a fabled high-speed system in the Northeast Corridor. Jump ball, yours. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very optimistic. You know, when I said, when I said in 2016, it's still true today that Richmond is on the rise. And people say, well, well, I thought we've already arrived. Like, you know, if you think that we've already arrived, and, you know, I think you're selling our city short because we're on the rise. Each year we get better and better and more competitive as a city because we've become a can-do city. I, I, I just choose not to be a, a defeatist, uh, a, a, someone who doubts the potential of the city. But guess what? The time is now for realizing that potential. So in order to do that, yeah, we have to focus on the blocking and tackling, right? As mayor and as a city government, we got to ensure that the roads uh, are, 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 are smooth and you can actually traverse them, right? So we can ensure that goods and products can, be, uh, can actually uh, get around the city. Uh, we, we also got to make sure the water's clean. Yeah, we got to focus on the blocking and tackling. However, 
The second part of this job is about uplift, about uplifting people and economic mobility. And you can do that in so many ways. And for us, that's creating pathways to economic mobility. That means investing in more and affordable housing, right? We got to have quality, affordable housing for all of our residents. And you know what? We are on the brink of a, uh, some would say we are currently in a housing crisis. Uh, we're not as bad as places like Portland and Seattle and Washington yet. But guess what? If we don't get cracking, uh, we're definitely going to have uh, some issues that are going to push some people out and we got to get going. So I had a goal uh, in 2018 to uh, build 1,500 new uh, affordable housing units in the city of Richmond by 2023. And I really do believe that we've surpassed that. That's more to come in my State of the City address towards uh, later this month. Uh, in addition to uh, housing, another pathway to economic mobility uh, is mass transit. I'm very, very proud of the work we've done with GRTC uh, in ensuring that, you know, there's a more reliable uh, uh, route, uh, a more reliable and faster route for folks to get from home to work and vice versa. You know, uh, we launched a pulse in 2017, right? And our initial projection was well, maybe 3,000, 3,500 people will ride it daily. 7,000 plus people ride the Pulse, the BRT Pulse down Broad Street and Main Street on a daily basis. We've seen an 18% uptick in the use of GRTC since uh, July of 2017. This is the way folks get from, from their jobs, from their home to their jobs to make money, put food on the table and a roof over people's heads. I also believe that public education, improving public education, is a vital pathway for our young people uh, to actually achieve the American dream. Can you comment on the Stay RVA movement? Oh, And this gosh. idea that uh, kind of axiomatically, we talked with school's chief Jason Cameras about it, that, you know, I talk to outsiders about relocating to Richmond, and they think automatically, reflexively, that if you do that and you live in the city, you got to send your kid to a private yeah, school. I've heard that it. That it's, it's the cost of doing business here, that, that elementary schools might be fine, but once you hit sixth, seventh grade, that's going to increase your nut, the cost of moving to Richmond overall. But now there's a nascent movement, and I met with you know, families in the fan that really want to take back ownership of these yeah. schools. But we saw tension over the past several months with this kind of echo you know, busing thing. You saw some candidates run dirty campaigns and saying that we're going to force you know, desegregation on your schools again. And these are things that you thought were litigated back in the 60s and 70s. But it's, it's extremely tough to desegregate a kind of a de facto segregated school system. Yes. And you know what? Schools become even more segregated because of the rezoning process. I really do believe, I wish, I really wish that we took some more positive steps to actually desegregate our schools. I was, I was somewhat disappointed by our inability to be bold and do the right thing and diversify these classrooms. But, you know, other opportunities will present itself in the future. And you're right. Uh, State RVA is a, a nascent movement, but it is the number of, of, of voices and, and citizens involved uh, are the sort of, uh, uh, it's the sort of uh, group and collective that you want to see to take the school system to the next level. Now, here's the thing. That does not mean that our school system currently can excel. You know, the school, the way it is today, can excel. I like seeing the fact that my white residents want to put their kids in Richmond Public School, uh, but uh, right now we got to do the most, do the, do 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 everything we can that our black kids, right, which are roughly 85, 90 percent of the kids in Richmond Public School are black, black kids living in impoverished conditions in the challenges of poverty, that they get the best as well. 
And I'm glad that we we care about Richmond Public Schools so much now that we are having these conflicts and we're having these tough discussions, but we can't forget about uh, the, the kid who's growing up in, let's say, Gilpin Court or in Hillside, that, you know what, their parents may be ne- or maybe failed by uh, Richmond Public Schools, and today they need our help today. The question is that problem, and we said this with, with Jason Cameron, is it's structural. That's still hard tethered to the hyper-local tax base. And you're never going to convince people in Windsor Farms to pay more for people in Gilpin Court. Well, you know, I, I dealt with that earlier this year, right? You know, in, in, in March of 2019, or earlier last year, in March of 2019, I I put forward a bold plan to fund rich and public schools by asking for a nine-cent increase on the real estate tax from 120 to rolling it up to 129, where it was pre-recession. And you would have thought that I was trying to, like, you know, tear down the, the capital, you know. Uh, I, I, I did that because, number one, it's the right thing to do. And number two, our schools need it. They need a sustainable source, a revenue source, to ensure that we can, year after year, fix the problems that we see in rich and public schools. You know, we didn't get what we wanted. Uh, it didn't happen, but we did were able to use some of those growth dollars. Luckily, the city of Richmond is growing every year, and uh, we were able to use some of those growth dollars to invest in Richmond Public Schools. But guess what? We can't count on that sort of growth year in and year out because one day we've had a robust recovery. Uh, Robin, you know this. Since the recession, one day the gravy train is going to stop. And we are going to have to ask ourselves, we're going to have to look inward and say, what are we going to do about our schools? We're going to continue to beg the state and advocate for more dollars uh, from rich rich public schools. But we have to look inward and take full responsibility on what kind of community we want to be. Do we want to be a top 10 community for people to visit, a la what's going on with the New York Times today? Or we're going to be a top 10 community where people want to live. And in order to do that, you got to invest in your schools. So the frustrating thing, it's almost like resting the bone from the dog's mouth when you have to pass the meals tax, you know, to make a case for the schools. And I remember you holding up, uh, you know, two nickels or two pennies, couple, two pennies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, that that met with a tremendous amount of hostility from the RVA dine restaurant communities. Like, why are you taking it out of our high? Yeah. It's like, why didn't you go up against Altria immediately? Why didn't you go up against Dominion or one of these other players? Uh, there, there's a tremendous kind of, you know, Michael Paul Williams said it on our show is like the what about the what about ism? What yes. about them? What, what about, about them? What yeah. about them? And it's 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 decidedly zero sum. I, I see a, a failure across the country to say that we're doing this to up the entire city's game. You talk to a you know private school parent in the Windsor Farms area and the River Road corridor, they're like, well, I already pay rich property taxes and I pay thirty thousand dollars to send my kid to St. Chris or Collegiate. Why are you triple jeopardying me? I think we have to re- recognize that what one Richmond really means, it means that we're in this together. Right. If you live in Windsor Farms or uh, or you live in Malvern Gardens or uh, if you live in Hillside or you, if you live in Mosby, we're in this thing together as Richmonders. Right. And unfortunately, we have uh, uh, Richmond as a city has been able to live on as a place of two Richmonds. Right. Between a have and a have nots. And I have to, number one, find the revenue in places where I can. And you know what, Robin? You know, yes, we asked the dining community, uh, we asked patrons of our restaurants, those who are coming in from Henrico and Chesterfield and other places beyond, to pay more. And we got three new schools being erected around the city of Richmond some that were in dire need. We went to uh, those who consume cigarettes and tobacco. We said, you know what? We're going to add 50 cents to 
your 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 purchase is now in the city of Richmond. We did that, and then last this is still a really cheap place to buy smokes. Oh, yes, it's it one of the smuggling is, yeah. capitals. Are you comfortable standing up to to Altria or Dominion? Hey, we got fifty cents, didn't we? I, I hey, my job is to put Richmonders first, right? And so yeah, uh, Altria and those, and also convenience store owners were very upset with me. Sure. I've had restaurant tours upset with me as well. I've been yelled at at I restaurants. I heard you been kicked out of a restaurant. I've been yelled and kicked out of restaurants before, uh, oh right? And I've been yelled at by residents who live in you know pretty well off areas of, of of the city, and you know in in places like the rising Churchill or in Windsor Farms who said they didn't want to pay more. And I, I stood by the kids in this city because I think they deserve more. Yeah, we got a lot of, you know, yeah, our, our, our tax rate is a little bit higher than our friends in Henrico and Chesterfield. But there's a reason for that. Chesterfield and Henrico don't have, they don't have 21.8% poverty. Chesterfield and Henrico also don't, they don't have a city that's landlocked and, uh, 30% of your land is tax exempt, right? That's why that's why Navy Hill for me is so important because it's us creating revenue for ourselves, growing up and using uh, this arena to be a magnet for investment and being the catalyst for even more investment that will provide some uplift to real people uh, here in the city. And, uh, you know, my fear is when we don't do things like Navy Hill, where's the city going to be 10 years from now? Because what all it's going to do is push off the decision point on we need more taxes. Hmm. I've done it. I, I've I've asked for economic growth. I've asked to raise taxes as well on three occasions. I've asked the state for more and more money each and every year. The one thing I refuse to do is to cut deeper and deeper into the operations of City Hall because the potholes have to be filled, the roads have to be paved, the water has to be clean, and the grass has to get cut. You do point out that when you ran for mayor in 2016, uh, Richmond's poverty rate was 26%. It's now dropped to below 22%. I, I've always wanted to ask you what most moves the needle on that. If there's one thing that in your experience in rolling up your sleeves and, you know, as Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia, that that you get most bang for your buck, most bang for the effort, what is it? You know what? I think it's a combination of the work that we do with the Office of Community Wealth Building, which is uh, providing pathways to economic mobility, uh, essentially training the workforce, particularly those who may have had an, in, an encounter with the criminal justice system and got a, a scarlet F on their chest, a felony conviction, getting them trained up, skilled up to get some of the quality jobs that are coming to Richmond now. You know, with us being such a desirable place to live, that means that the private sector are the, uh, employers are investing in the city. And with that investment, I want our people to be the ones in the front of the line to get that sort of employment. So I credit the private sector and I also credit, you know, what we do with the office community wealth building as well. You know, we have a, like I said, a low unemployment rate, but that unemployment rate is different for black and brown people who live in this city. Those who live in the East End and in South Richmond, those are the ones in need of, uh, they're the ones who are in need of opportunities. And that's what projects like Navy Hill create. I have a crazy idea for you, and you never get the Let's chance really to, to share this with the mayor. But, you know, every time I'm at a—my a, son loves the Flying Squirrels, and every time I'm at Who the, doesn't love the Flying Squirrels? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really well-run program. He congratulates you on uh, bringing the All-Star game here, mm -hmm. which, you know, we had our own player from the Flying Squirrels win MVP in that. But every time I'm in there and I'm thinking about the great brewery scene in Scott's edition, look, mm -hmm. we lost the Richmond Braves, and we have the Richmond Flying Squirrels right now. How about we sabotage them and we go for Milwaukee single-A team and we call it, <laughs> wait for it, wait for it, 
the Richmond microbrewers. <laughs> Tax it's, revenue. And none of the Navy Hill people are going to oppose it. <laughs> you make them sound like micro machines. Like, you know, they, they, they're, come on. They microbrewers? Micro brewers. The microbrewers. The Milwaukee the micro brewers. I like flying squirrels. I'm sorry. I thought I had my big I chance. like flying squirrels. The but San Francisco guess, Giants affiliate from the boulevard to the bay? I mean, come on. We're closer to Milwaukee. The boulevard to the bay. That's interesting. Arthur Ashe Boulevard to the bay. Hey, uh, that's the next economic development venture I think the city has to take a look at, and we're going to be entertaining uh, proposals on Scott's that in the future. Scott's edition is on fire. That's I don't right. understand it. I was there 10 years ago. It, it, it looked like you know, a big brownfield or Superfund site to me now, and it, people are, are taking the dregs by the 195 and putting up all sorts of breweries and restaurants. Have you tried to go to ZZQ like before noon? It's hard to get in. It's I difficult mean, to get in. And I don't like to cut line or anything like that either. That's just not who I am. Do so. you know if, you, uh, if you're ever on the Downtown Express and you drop my name at the toll booth, they give you 70 cents? Uh, <laughs> I think I'll just pay my tolls, maybe. I don't want to like, get it any Nobody like... charges you tolls. <laughs> I have an easy pass. So. I am not kidding about this thing. I'm going to rope you into a stunt because it is essential for the future of Richmond, Virginia. As you know, there's a part of my show that is dog-legged into rock acts and music acts and bringing them back to Richmond. And to that end, I am inviting back native daughter Pat Benatar, who was big here in the early 70s. At night, she played at Sam Miller's in Shaco Slip. She worked at a bank branch on 3rd and Broad. One of her first songs was Daytime Job. I am daring her to come back to Richmond, Virginia. We're going to take her a box of the best donuts here, have one of the breweries make her a Benatar brew, and I hope and pray that you can offer her a key to the, the city. The key to the city, definitely. Or a duet or something. Do you, you hear that, Pat? You got to get back to the city of Richmond. She's a real tough cookie with long, long overdue. History. Right? Yeah. But we have to bring her back Gotta and bring celebrate her back. Pat. I mean, it's been 40 years of doing this, and we could tell the story, but I need help doing it. Hey, I got the key. You want to write the letter? Am I allowed to write that check? Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's all sorts of conflict whoa, of no interest. No one said anything about check. We just said By letter. the way, where do you, where do you hold court to, to get kind of, you know, uh, shady solicitations done? Your predecessor would do it at Morton's down in Chaco Slip. <laughs> Everybody knew that if you wanted a Mayor Dwight, you First, could go I will and, never accept the uh, premise of shady solicitations. Do it at a better place than Morton's, at least. Uh, Don't do it at a chain. Or I eat my dinner or, or enjoy a libation uh, ranges. Uh, I love Cezanne. I love Adara. That's in the, these are all both in the Jackson Ward neighborhoods. Uh, I love uh, Restaurant Row on Grace, on Grace Street. Uh, I love Rappahannock and Juan Gonzalez and, and Fat Dragon and Scott's Edition and uh, Perch as well. It's delicious. Crissette and Churchill. It's delicious. Alewife and Churchill. My my old go-to is Hill Cafe. Oh, yes. Kind of have the, I did have the, a the chicken blue plate, but I'm a pescatarian. You're so a pescatarian. No, no fried chicken blue plate anymore. This, well, this I year. cannot thank you enough for joining us. And I am going to put you up to that Pat Benatar stunt. You could tell your, your press secretary and everybody else because I'm, I'm hell-bent. We'll get the key. We'll get the key. And apparently Thomas Jefferson High School sponsored her. Like, we can get a whole stunt going We can going do it together. again. But um, really put that atop your agenda because you have nothing else going on. <laughs> I think we talked about a lot. I think I got a lot going on. But, Pat, come back to RVA. Mayor LeVar Stoney, you are always welcome to come back to uh, Full Disclosure. Thank you so much, Robin. Full Disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Kelly Libby. Enjoy this show on NPR member station VPM News, on the trusty NPR One app, which I cannot live without, and, of course, on NPR.org. On iTunes, you can enjoy us at link fulldradio.com. Happy New Year. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>